Here at Calvary, um, especially on Sunday mornings, our kind of bread and butter, our usual, is just to move right through the New Testament. But because the New Testament is organized with all four of the Gospels up front, we kind of sprinkle those through the New Testament. And so we've done Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and we actually began as a church in the book of Luke. Uh, and so now we're going to do the Gospel of Mark, and then after Mark, we'll pick up in Galatians. Um, if you're in need of a Bible this morning, you'll find one in close proximity to you, tucked in the back of the pews. They're the black ones, and I believe about 837 page-wise will get you to the Gospel of Mark. Um, just a few introductory notes about Mark before we really get started. Um, one thing that's helpful to understand when it comes to the organization of your New Testament um, is that the books are laid out in chronological order uh, in one sense, but not in another sense. So they're chronological in the story they tell. And so the New Testament opens with the story of Jesus's life, death, burial, resurrection. It's followed by the next generation, uh, what happens just after that with the beginning years of the church. And then the rest of the New Testament, for the most part, is made up of letters written by the apostles uh, uh, that talk about what Jesus accomplished to Christians and churches and how it impacts their lives. So that's a good order. It's an organized order, but it's not uh, chronological in the sense of when things were written. Okay, so for example, we're pretty sure that the oldest gospel we have is Mark even though Matthew precedes it in your New Testament. In fact, we're pretty confident that both Matthew and Luke are not just familiar with Mark, but heavily quote it. They use it as the foundation of their gospel. In fact, we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels, meaning that they basically tell the same story in the same way, and that's probably because they're just following the path that Mark laid out before them. Okay? But not only that, the gospels also uh, are written after the majority of the epistles, these letters that make up the New Testament. So Mark wrote his gospel um, after uh, the apostles have gone out. In fact, most likely, Mark wrote it to the church in Rome. Now, Rome is a long way from Jerusalem, and to understand how a church came to be in Rome, you have to open up to the book of Acts. You have to read the letter that's written to the Romans. You have to read uh, 2 Peter, uh, and you can kind of see the story of how this church grows uh, it is suggested, and actually these are really good studies, to, to, know, to know why I say that this was written to Rome, to know why I believe that, it, as I'm about to say, that it's suggested that this is primarily Peter's preaching being re, uh, or written down uh, in Mark's hand. Uh, all of this stuff is an interesting study. Okay, I can't resist, so let me just pause. Uh, I've been studying the Bible actively for about 15 years now. And one of the things that really convinced me of its reality and its reliability um, is the relationship between the books of the New Testament. Uh, in other words, we suggest that, uh, or tradition suggests that Mark wrote this gospel to the church in Rome on behalf of the ministry of Peter and when you start to read 1 Peter and Romans and follow these little tiny stories, these mini biographies of where people are at and their relationships through the New Testament, that becomes an incredibly compelling thing. 
So for example, we find Peter in Rome late in his life, and at that time he says that Mark is with him and even refers to him as in being such a close relationship, he identifies him as his son. Uh, in, in, the, um, in the final chapters of Mark, when Jesus is carrying his cross, he's helped by a man from Cyrene named Simon. Now what's interesting about that is it tells us in Mark that Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander. Isn't that an exciting point? Right? You don't know who Rufus and Alexander are, but what can we know for sure? That Mark does, and that whoever Mark is writing to does. And so it's interesting that when we open up the book of Romans, chapter 16, we find a Rufus. Okay? Now I would suggest to you that Rufus today and Rufus then is about as common of a name. Not, not unheard of, there's more than one Rufus in the world, but we find one where we would expect to, okay? Um, there's so many pieces to this, but here's the point. Um, most likely, this is the story. So Peter ends up in Rome, and he is constantly telling people the story of the days that Jesus ministered teaching the teachings of Jesus, telling about the miracles of Jesus. And when Peter dies, Mark says, okay, I'm going to com commit these preaching, I'm going to commit uh, Peter's testimony, if you will, to text, to preserve it for the sake of the church. Okay, why am I telling you all of this? The primary reason is because it's helpful to understand that the Gospel of Mark was written to Christians people who have already uh, responded to the preaching of Jesus, people who already are following Jesus, and this is like, this is like the prequel. This is like the story before the story, okay? We'll see that as we read uh, this morning. This morning, we're just gonna focus on the first uh, 15 verses, and this functions as an introduction to the rest of the book. Um, but I want you to notice as I read um, how dense this material is. In fact, do this one thing as I read. Flag anything that if you had never opened the Bible, you wouldn't understand. Okay, here we go. Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The, t the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, 
Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who are Christians this morning, this is our origin story. This is the beginning of the gospel. And so I pray, Lord, that as we begin today in Mark and as we continue uh, over the course of this year, uh, I ask that we would be reacquainted not just with the first things of Christianity, but with Jesus himself. Mark's great goal is that we would know who Jesus is. And so I pray that you would help us with that. And I pray for those who are here, who are investigating Christianity, uh, who are, are not sure where they stand, uh, who do not yet believe these things. And I pray, Lord, that uh, as they come to see who Jesus is, they would weigh that reality in their hearts. I ask God that you would open the text to us this morning by your spirit and open our hearts to your voice. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Right now, I'm reading um, through the, what's sometimes called the five-foot shelf of knowledge or the Harvard Classic series. Uh, there was a dean at Harvard a long time ago, over 100 years now, and in a speech to his students, he said, I can fit an entire liberal education in a, on a five-foot shelf. And he was challenged, well, you say that, do it. And so since then, they've been publishing this five-foot shelf of knowledge. Everything from the Western world he felt at the time you should read if you want to understand the Western world. So anyways, right now I'm reading a bunch of classic, pray, uh, classic plays. And one of the things I've discovered is hard about reading plays is that you have the characters introduced up front as well as their relationships. You know, So you've got Theseus and then Hippolytus, his son, and then his wife, uh, whose name I don't remember, so I'm not going to try. Uh, right? And it's just, it's just on my iPhone where I'm doing my reading. It's a single screen. You can just kind of read through the names. And then you jump in, and you have to keep track of who the characters are and how they're connected. Right? It's challenging. It's easier when you're watching on stage because you have all of that sensory reinforcement that's going on. Um, in the same way, this introduction to the Gospel of Mark uh, it can be a challenge because it's so chock full of everything that comes uh, after it. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning three different ways to look at these first 15 verses that are helpful. The first is that it's like an overture. Okay. Have you ever uh, gone to a musical or an opera or watched uh, a movie from the 1960s or earlier and when the credits roll there's that musical interlude and it brings in all the themes that come later, right? All of the music that comes later. Um, in the same way, Mark takes these first 15 verses and he weaves all of the great themes of the gospel. But here they're just thrown at you. They have no context. You know, in, in Star Wars, if there's an overture at the beginning and you hear Leia's theme, you don't know who Leia is yet, right? Uh, but, but you connect the dots later. In the same way here, Mark is laying out all these pieces, uh, and so much of it is technical Christian la language. Who is the Son of God? What is a Messiah? Um, you know, what is the spirit and why is the spirit descending like a dove? All of these things are laid out here uh, and, and intentionally Mark is saying, this is who Jesus is, now let me show you Jesus, okay? 
This is, these are the boxes to put Jesus in. Now let me fill in the contents, okay? It acts like an overture. Um, the second thing it a- operates like is a prologue, okay? Now a prologue and an overture are very similar things, but one thing that a prologue does is it helps to um, give you the necessary information to understand the context of what follows. If you've read much of the Bible and you've ever read the book of Job, the first two chapters of Job operate as a prologue. Okay? Uh, in the first two ta- chapters of Job, we don't start in Job's house. We don't even start on earth. We start in heaven as God and Satan are having a conversation. Now, what would happen if you read the book of Job without those chapters? You would see the same suffering and the same conversations, but you wouldn't actually know what's really going on. Okay? As we'll see this morning, all of this prologue is things that happen hidden from public view. Okay, so Mark tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, Isaiah tells us these things. Uh, The Spirit, or excuse me, a voice from heaven speaks to Jesus. The wilderness, he's out alone being tempted by the devil. That's all hidden. It's all out of there. But he wants us to know this up front so that we understand what follows. When we see him in contest with Satan here, it gives us the context to understand why all of the demons that he casts out submit to him. Because that's just a mop-up operation, right? The victory is here. When he's doing miracles, we should understand that he's doing them by the power of the Spirit that comes on him here, okay? So it operates as a prologue. It gives us the context so we understand what's coming. Side note, some of that context comes with tension, okay? So for example, I'm not going to spoil it, we'll get there. Um, But some of that context is things that he wants us to go, wait, how do those things reconcile? How did they go together? And they're going to unravel as we move forward. The last thing I'd suggest to you uh, is that this chapter operates as a true introduction. And what an introduction does in particular is introduce. Okay? And like I said, Mark's primary goal in the Gospel of Mark is to introduce us to Jesus. And so he does so. And he gives us more information than has meaning right now, okay? Um, But as we get to know Jesus more, suddenly that introduction gets to be filled out. So, with that being said, look again at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, that phrase is an insipid. An insipid is a long title for a book, okay? He gives us here not just the start of his text, like Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's actually a summary. It's a topical introduction to the whole book. What is the Gospel of Mark? It's the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In fact, it's worth pointing out here that he's not just saying, uh, like in in some of your worst speech class performances, all right, I'm going to begin my speech now, right? He's, He's not just saying, I'm going to begin my Gospel now. He says that I want to tell you about the beginning. In fact, if you were to turn to uh, Mark chapter 16 to the end of his gospel, you won't find a similar statement that says the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? If you've grown up in the church, and even if you haven't, we tend to take this word gospel, and even because of Mark's usage here, think of the gospels. 
Okay, there's the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. Um, but the word predates the writing of the Gospels. We find it in the writings of Peter. We find it in the writings of Paul that make up those epistles, which, like I told you earlier, are older than this. In fact, the word is incredibly common in Roman literature. Okay, uh, if a herald came into your town and told you about a victory on the front lines, this is the word he'd use. Gospel, good news. Okay? In fact, the most interesting place we find this is in reference to the birthday of the emperor or his ascension to the throne. Uh, in other words, it's usually related to the politics of Rome. And when you add emperors, we might as well say the worship of Roman politics. Okay. Um, in fact, the phrase son of God that's found here is often applied to Roman emperors. Um, but here's, here's the point. Gospel is something that someone else has done to your benefit. Like I said, oftentimes it's a military victory. It's good news. Now, there's one other place where this idea is being drawn from, and that's the book of Isaiah. Isaiah uses this phrase, good news, in the Hebrew and not in the Greek. Um, four or five times across the book to speak of what God is going to do. Okay, we'll come back to Isaiah, so I'll fill in some context later. Um, but what I want you to notice here is that this is the beginning of the good news. It's a fresh start. It's something new. The good news hasn't ended. The good news is still uh, going out into all the earth. Uh, the good news is still being proclaimed. It is still good. It is still available. But this is how it begins. Remember a decade ago when we were obsessed with prequels? So we had Batman Begins, and we had a relaunch of the Bond series, and went all the way back to his first mission, and we did it over and over again. We were interested in that story. That's what Mark is doing here. Okay. But notice uh, one last thing. This is the beginning of the gospel, and the word there is in the singular. Now, in the English, we can't really say the good newses. That's, that's not a thing. But in the Greek, most of the time, this word is used in the plural. There's good news, lots of good news, many good news, but provocatively here, Mark says, I want to tell you about the good news, the good news, the only good news, the most good news, however you want to read it. But notice it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's always worth reminding you that Christ is not Jesus' last name, Okay. Uh, it is a title that comes from the Hebrew word Messiah. It's a Greek word that just means anointed, okay? Um, but here, it just drops that and says, this is one of the things about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah, and then it adds the Son of God, okay? Now, I want you to notice that as we move forward, both of those ideas are going to be played with and unpacked. Here, they're just dropped here. They're just titles, okay? Notice what he does in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now, the quotation that follows here is not merely from Isaiah. It actually draws from Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah. Okay? Now, actually, that's a pretty common practice in the ancient world, especially in biblical studies of the Jews, to combine quotations and only reference the primary speaker. But also, for our purposes, uh, Mark does this intentionally because Isaiah is the one thing Mark wants us to read. 
He quotes it more than any other book in the Old Testament throughout the course of his gospel. And Isaiah is the only prophet who is named by name in his text. And then notice here, it's right introduction. He says, I'm going to tell you about the beginning of the gospel. And then he basically says, remember what Isaiah said. Okay. Now, the book of Isaiah was written... Um, leading up to the judgment on Israel that removed them from the promised land. After years and years of resistance and rebellion to God's word and prophets coming one after another and saying, repent, turn around, you're headed towards destruction, Isaiah basically says the destruction is coming. And then he looks beyond it, he looks beyond the exile, and he starts to talk about God doing a new work, a new exodus, bringing about a new servant, and a new covenant, and a new salvation. He looks beyond the judgment of Israel to, to a new work that God is going to do. Okay? So even though we read here the beginning, it's in a nuanced sense. God's work on earth doesn't begin here. God's new work, his promised work, according to Isaiah, begins here. Okay? Um, so look at the quotation here. As is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. A couple of things here. Now, we know because the next thing Mark talks about is that the messenger it's being talked about here is John the Baptist. Isaiah says there's going to be a time coming when I'm going to send a messenger Okay, a forerunner, somebody who's going to go before me. Malachi adds that he will be in the spirit of Elijah, like this great prophet from Israel's history. Uh, it also adds in Malachi that first the messenger is going to come, and then the Lord himself is going to show up. Okay? In fact, it says the Lord will come suddenly into his temple and will purify the priests like a refining fire. That'll be important when we get later in the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus cleanses the temple, okay? Um, but in Isaiah, it says specifically what this messenger is going to do is prepare the way of the Lord, okay? Now, in those days, if you were royalty and you were about to go on some long trip, the first thing that would happen is you'd send a road crew in front of you to make sure all of the roads were safe and easy, all the potholes filled in, any detours were removed, those types of things. That's the ministry Isaiah says this messenger is going to have. It's preparatory in nature. But here's, here's the most fascinating thing. Notice the opening of this. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So notice here, the preparation is for the Lord. Okay. Now, those two pronouns in the beginning, your face, your messenger, that's actually adjusted from the original text. Okay. It's changed because he's trying to make a point. Here's what it is. According to Isaiah, God says, I'm going to show up, and first the messenger will come. John is the messenger, and Jesus shows up. Okay. Sometimes, if you try and read about the New Testament, they will tell you that um, this idea that Jesus was divine, Jesus was God, is a late development in Christian thought. Okay. Oftentimes, they'll use Mark as exhibit A. They'll say that Mark has what they call a low Christology, 
He doesn't think that Christ is the Son of God. He doesn't think that Christ is divine. Even though he uses some of these words, they don't mean what we think they mean. That's all the Apostle Paul's doing. Now, first off, just, just to be obvious, Paul's letters predate the writing of this book. <laughs> so it's semi-irrelevant if Mark has a low Christology. The evolution of Christian thought won't work that way if the things that are older, like First and Second Thessalonians, which are some of the oldest letters, already have those views in place. But the other thing I want to mention is that clearly here, Mark wants us to think about provocatively, we're expecting the Lord to show up and it's Jesus who shows up instead. In fact, it's Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, the distance between those two things is pretty big. It's like us saying that God just showed up in Cedro Woolley. Okay. So this is the text and he lays it out, and it's not the only place in this introduction that Isaiah uh, occurs, but the next thing I want you to notice is in verse, verse 4. So John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay, and so John goes out into the wilderness and people start coming out to him and what he's calling them to is to confess their sins and be baptized. Remember what Isaiah said? There's going to be one who prepares the way. But notice where the way is. The way is the people. That's what needs to be prepared. John's ministry is preparatory in the sense that he's trying to get them ready for what comes next and he does so through baptism. Now, it's interesting, if you go back to the book of Exodus, when, uh, when God is about to reveal himself on Mount Sinai, think of the giving of the Ten Commandments. Think of Charlton Heston if you have to, okay? That part, okay? Before that happens, a call goes out that all of Israel is to cleanse themselves and sanctify themselves and prepare themselves for the presence of God. There's a similar idea here. And it's done, it says here, through the confession of sins and baptism. Okay, that's John's ministry. Now, um, this is such a defining trait of John's ministry that the other Gospels just refer to him as John the Baptizer. This is what he's known for, okay? This is the definition, and actually it's a pretty uncommon thing. Baptism was not a Jewish practice that was very large. We can see some cases where there was ritual cleansing required of Gentile converts to become Jews, okay? Okay, you wanna be Jewish? Well, there's a few things you need to do, and one of them is a ritual cleansing. Uh, also, the Nicene, or excuse me, not the Nicenes, um, the Essenes, okay, think Dead Sea Scrolls. That's contemporary to John in the same wilderness, side note. Um, they had a lot of ritual cleansing. In fact, this text from Isaiah that's taken here was their defining text that shaped their commune, okay? Um, but what John is doing here is different. Effectively, here's what the baptism of John means. It means, I am not right, and I need God's help, okay? That's the preparation there to do. It's not making them right so that Jesus can come and not be disgusted by their sin. It's them identifying with their need for God to come. Okay, so that's what's going on here. The second thing about John's uh, ministry is it's, um, it's culminating. 
So it's preparatory in one sense, it's culminating in the other, and this is what I mean. Throughout the Old Testament, all the way back with Genesis, there are these prophecies of the one who is to come, the Messiah, the one who God is going to work through, the one who will set things right, the one who will be the son of David, the one who will fulfill the promises of Abraham, the one who will pour out in the new covenant, the spirit, all of these things, okay? Every other prophet, their primary message, doesn't matter if you read Isaiah or Ezekiel or you look at the ministry of Elijah, all of them, the primary thing they talk about is basically summed up in these two words, he's coming. Okay, and so when we get to the minor prophets, uh, Daniel says, he's coming really soon and I'll give you a calendar. Uh, another one of the minor prophets says he's coming and he's going to be born in Bethlehem, right? The details get clear. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And John's ministry is to point to one person and say he's here, okay? That's, that's John's ministry. In fact, notice what it says here. Um, it says in verse 7, he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. John doesn't come preaching his own ministry or, or his own self. He says, I'm about to be eclipsed by something way more important. In fact, he uses his baptism as a lens to understand what's coming. Notice what he says in verse 8. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I've immersed you in water, but the one who's coming is going to pour out, flood out the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so the idea here... I think that we need, to, uh, we need to recognize is one of anticipation. John is a forerunner in the sense that basically says, if I'm out here, it's because the king is coming, right? He's building up an audience. He's filling, uh, filling the seats, if you will, before this great event of salvation is going to happen, before the fulfillment of all these things is going to take place. And I want to um, reiterate here that if we're going to truly understand who Jesus is and respond to who Jesus is, preparation is necessary. Okay. Now we need to be really careful here because a lot of times what we think is, okay, for me to be able to approach God, for me to be able to know God, for me to be able to walk with God, yes, there's preparation. I have to get my stuff together. I have to fix stuff. Okay. A bath doesn't fix stuff for God. In fact, even the baptism that we endure as Christians is not because God is interested in wet Christians. That's not the point, okay? But what this does here is identifying, maybe even for a bunch of Jews who grew up in Jerusalem, identifying that their need for God is just as great as a Gentile's need for God. That they are in a significant way because of sin, outsiders, and need help, okay? And the thing is, if you come to Jesus as anything less than a savior, and this is true of the first time, but it's also true of every other time, then you won't see who Jesus really is. If you come and you just say, Jesus, I just need better instruction. Just teach me the right way to fix myself. It won't work. Your problem is bigger than that. Jesus was the best teacher that ever lived had the highest and most helpful ethics ever presented, and it won't help you one ounce because the problem is not ignorance. If you come and you say, Jesus, I just need, I just need you to be my example. Just show me the way, 
and I'll follow after. You have the same problem. The only way to come before Jesus, and I would say even if you're doing this in the hypothetical sense, if you join us for this journey through the gospel of Mark and you just go, okay, I just want to see if Jesus is who everybody else says he is. At least in the hypothetical, in the open-handed, tentative sense, you need to say, okay, if, if you are who the Bible really proclaims you are, then I must be who the Bible really proclaims that I am, a sinner in need of saving. Okay. Take it hypothetical. You don't have to believe it now. Take it on credit. Take it on faith. But you will never understand who Jesus is until you experience the preparation that John's baptism points to which is that you need something that you can't do and Jesus claims to have provided, okay? Now, remember here, what does John say? He says, there's one who's coming mightier than me, one, and second, he says, there's one who's coming who's not just gonna baptize you in water but with the Holy Spirit. But notice what happens next, verse 19, or excuse me, nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. We're expecting one who has a greater baptizing ministry than John to show up. Instead, we find Jesus from Podunk, Nazareth to be baptized. Now, what did I just tell you this baptism was about? It was a confession of sins. It was expressing need. So if Jesus is who the New Testament proclaims that he is, perfectly innocent, without sin, the only righteous one who always does the things that please the Father, what need is for, them to be, is for him to be baptized? Now, if you read Matthew's gospel, John actually protests and he goes, wait a minute, I know who you are. You should be baptizing me, not the other way around. Okay? That tension is one that even John himself understood, but what is going on here? This is the first thematic thing that we have to hold up. We're expecting the Lord to show up, and not only is it Jesus, but Jesus goes through the baptism of John. He identifies with a sinful nation. He identifies with their needs. Okay. Now, I'm spoiling the plot a little bit, so forgive me. But Isaiah starts to talk about the one who's going to come will be the servant of God. And as you read that passage, sometimes the servant of God is the people of God. It's, it's plural. Sometimes the idea is singular, and it kind of weaves in and out. It, it involves all of these things. The point here is that G the way that Jesus is going to accomplish his ministry is through identifying with the people that he's saving, living as one of them, okay? entering into their own need um, for saving uh, and so he does so in the baptism, but notice what else happens, verse 10. When he came up out of the water immediately, he... Now, who's the pronoun refer to there? Jesus, okay? Other gospels tell us that John also saw this. Uh, in fact, one of the gospels says that all the crowds observed this happening here. But all Mark wants us to understand is how Jesus heard these things. And so he goes into the water, he comes up, and immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, the other Gospels use the word opened, just saw the heavens opening. The word that's used here is really violent, okay? If you open something, you can close it. If you tear something, it's not so easy to do. In fact, speaking of Isaiah, Isaiah, I believe it's in chapter 62. So at this point, Isaiah's been writing about this coming salvation for a long time, 
and he suddenly just exclaims this prayer, and he says, oh God, rend the heavens and come down. Basically, he says, okay, God, if you're going to fix everything, do it. Come down. Enter into our world. And that's what we see happening in the baptism of Jesus. It's as if the heavens are torn open. It's as if any barrier between those two realms is broken. Okay? It's as if uh, God's inactivity, which has been for at least 400 years during the silent years between the Old Testament and the New, is suddenly broken. God is on the move. He's working. Okay? The second thing that happens is it says, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. Okay? And so he sees this dove-like presence descend on him. And actually it says here uh, that the Spirit um, not came upon him, but filled him fully. That's the, the preposition that's used here. Okay. Now, like I said, the Spirit doesn't get referenced a lot in the Gospel of Mark. But later, when we look at Jesus and he's doing miracles... This is the reason. This is the justification. This is the reality. Now, why a dove? Actually, commentators have no really solid idea. When we look at Roman culture, the dove doesn't bring significant meaning. When we look at the Old Testament, the only reference we find to doves are negative. Silly like a dove uh, in Song of Songs. There is the ark, uh, but actually the word there is not the word for dove. It's a more general term. Uh, and so there, there are places, um, but there are two that I want to point out that I think are of, of great interest. One is going all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, another beginning, right? So this is the beginning of the gospel, and Genesis is the beginning of everything. And in Genesis 1-2, it says the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. That's where creation story starts. That word for hovering is a bird language fluttering over, okay? And so he may be referencing here not creation, but a new creation. But there's another thing that I'd like to suggest, okay? So do you guys know what a portent is? In the ancient world, especially in Rome, a portent was a visible sign of how things were going to turn out, okay? So maybe it's a particular constellation or an eclipse, or a lot of times it's an appearance of something. And if you read the history of Rome, the most significant appearance of something is the eagle, right? This is why they eventually took the eagle uh, as their banner for the Roman Empire is because the eagle was the king of the birds. He was the, you know, top predator, and that's how Rome saw themselves. So when you read about the great battles of Rome, they hardly ever happen without an eagle showing up in an opportune moment. Now just think of the contrast here between an eagle and a dove. The idea of the Spirit coming upon Jesus is one of tremendous power. But not a power to conquer, to rage war, to, to oppress, to crush. Something different. And then the last thing that happens in verse 11, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So this voice speaks as God the Father speaks of Jesus and he says, you're my beloved son, and I'm totally pleased with you. Now, here's something that's easy to miss. The language of these words has Old Testament precedence. Okay? The language that's used here that God uses to speak over Jesus' baptism is once again, like that earlier passage from Isaiah, an amalgamation of different things. So, for example, in Psalm 2, 
there's this expectation for the Messiah. And it basically says, the whole world is trying to figure out how to destroy God's king, but you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And it's one of the first psalms that the Jews believed was looking forward to this coming one, the Messiah. Okay? Uh, not only that, but this one's worth turning to. Flip back to Isaiah, if you can find it, and go to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is where the servant songs begin. Remember I told you Isaiah talks a lot, a lot about the coming servant? It culminates in Isaiah 53 with the great suffering of the servant for people other than himself. But they begin here, and notice what it says in 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. In you I am well pleased, the voice says from heaven. Here in Isaiah God says, in you my soul delights. It's the same phrase. And then notice this, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then notice the dove-like quality. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. But there's one other thing. You take Psalm 2 and that's where we get the Son of God. You take Isaiah 42, and that's where we get, of whom I am well pleased. But then there's that word in this voice, you are my beloved son. Where does that come from? The closest reference is in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, God has finally done for Abraham what he promised and given him miraculously through his own wife, a son. And then he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your beloved son, to a mountain that I will show you and offer him up as a sacrifice. What I'm saying here is that there's, there's a note of danger. There's a note of darkness. There's a foreboding uh, sense to adding this word beloved. Of course, it speaks of an incredibly close relationship between the father and the son. But it also starts to lay out this thing. And it's one of the tensions of Mark's gospel. How can Jesus be the one who God is so well pleased in, and yet we're going to find him abandoned by God and dying at the hands of men, bearing the full weight of judgment? Okay, even here in the introduction, it's just... They say, if you're writing a book and there's a murder in Act 2, there better be a gun in Act 1. Okay? That's what this is. Okay, so here the Spirit comes upon Jesus, and then notice the next thing that happens, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Okay, so he comes from the land of Israel proper to the river Jordan, and now he's pushed out of Israel entirely and it tells us here that he goes out there not of his own volition, volition but this self-same spirit that came upon him drives him out there okay. and it says that what happened there for 40 days was that he was tempted by Satan tempted by the devil okay. now all three of the synoptic gospels reference this Luke and Matthew tell us 
specifically about particular temptations. Mark doesn't. And that's because his concern here is only to show, only to show, um, let's call it the begrudging testimony of the devil for who Jesus is. Okay. John says, it's someone mightier than I who's going to pour out the Holy Spirit. The voice from heaven says, this is the Son of God, my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. And now Satan goes, oh yeah? I'll see about that. This testing here proves, it demonstrates who Jesus is. Jesus is the first person on earth who the devil doesn't have a foothold in. Right? One of the reasons why we can't save other people is because we're in need of saving. It's like a drowning person trying to save a drowning person. Okay, it doesn't work. And so here, as a demonstration of who Jesus really is, truly the Son of God, for 40 days, the devil brings Adam his worst. That's why, like I said, what follows afterwards is a tremendous authority that Jesus has over demonic powers because the devil has no contest with him. Later in Mark's gospel, Jesus is going to say, look, you cannot plunder the house of a strong man until you tie up the strong man. And he, he says that parable talking specifically about demonic powers. Basically, he says, I'm able to bring about deliverance for all these people because I've already taken care of the strong man. I'm already taken care of Satan. Okay. And so here, the devil finds no hold in him. And then notice, uh, he was in the uh, wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Okay. Now, both of those are really fascinating. The word there for ministering is the same one we get the word deacon from. It probably means at the end of the 40 days, just like uh, Elijah was fed in the wilderness by ravens, Jesus is nourished here by angelic mediation. They actually bring him something to eat. Okay? But the one I wanted to draw your attention to is with the wild animals. Here's one of the things I love about the Gospel of Mark. Random, vivid details. You know the feeding of the 5,000? All of them tell us that they sat down on the grass, but in Mark, it's the green grass. Okay? He's just, he just adds these vivid details. We, I think, would all agree that the wilderness is the place where wild animals are. So why does Mark say it? Okay. Here's a complaint. Most people undervalue or read Mark poorly because we have Matthew and Luke, so why do we need Mark? In fact, a lot of times when people preach through Mark, they, just, they actually just preach Mark supplemented by Matthew and Luke. They don't allow it to speak on its own terms. And unfortunately, that means we miss out on what Mark is actually trying to say. Now, that doesn't explain here why he mentions wild animals, but let me suggest something to you. Okay. Here, he's tempted by the devil and comes out clean, and he's living with the wild animals and is not harmed. What we're going to see, especially in the next few weeks, is not just that Jesus has authority over the demonic world, but all of nature. Okay? To put it as some of our hymns sometimes put it, and even as some of the prophets put it in the Old Testament, all of creation recognizes their creator, except for the Jews, except for human beings. Okay? And so Jesus is going to get out on a boat in a massive storm, and he's going to say, be still, storm, and the storm recognizes the voice of God and calms. 
This is a prelude to that. It's, it's a part of that. Okay. So, let's finish here. It's at this point that Jesus' ministry proper begins. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, so notice here, Jesus now comes and he says, the time is now. The kingdom has come. The promises are being fulfilled. Consider the words of Luke. Uh, Luke tells us that right after this temptation, he comes not just into Galilee, but to his hometown of Nazareth. And on the Sabbath, he enters into uh, the synagogue and he enjoys a worship service like we're doing now. And he sits before the people to teach and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah and the reading for the day out of Isaiah. He reads it and this is his teaching. The words that I read you right now are being fulfilled right now in your hearing. Okay. The kingdom of God has come. The new work is happening. The gospel is here and then he gives a response, repent and believe the gospel. Okay, and so John comes preaching baptism and repentance. Jesus comes preaching repentance and belief. Okay, there's a comparison here. There's a touch point between these two ministries. Uh, and so this begins Jesus' ministry proper, and I want you to notice the defining trait of it. Yes, Jesus does miracles. Yes, Jesus, uh, you know, does exorcisms. But what what is given here is a summary statement of what Jesus does for the rest of the book, and he comes preaching the arrival of the kingdom of God. Okay. That is what Jesus' ministry is at its heart. Now, what's interesting is Mark doesn't give us as much of the teaching of Jesus as Matthew or Luke. It focuses instead of the actions of Jesus. The reason is because he's writing to the church in Rome that is well acquainted with the teachings of Jesus and is trying to live in them. He wants to demonstrate that the authority of Jesus who told them to live this way is proven in the life that he lived. Okay? And so that's something to look for in the week forward. But here's where I want to finish. Here's what I think is the most fascinating tension. John says, one mightier than I is coming. And it's just a man from Galilee that no one's ever heard of. Just shows up out of nowhere. And he comes to be baptized. He says, uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But what do we see? We see Jesus being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Right? When we get to the climax of Mark's gospel in the cross, we find a repeat of what happens in the baptism here. But it's slightly different. Here's what it looks like. Okay? Whereas here, whereas here the Spirit comes upon Jesus, in Mark's gospel, as he's hanging on a cross and dying, he says, Father, I give up my spirit to you. Whereas here, the heavens are rent. There, while Jesus is dying on a cross, the veil between the holiest place and the holy place is rent. Same word, torn. Here, a voice speaks from heaven and says, you are the Son of God. There, the only one who recognizes it is a Roman who's watching Jesus die, and he says, truly, this man is the Son of God. Okay. Mark wants us right now to be asking questions like, how can these things be? How are they going to be resolved? If Jesus is bringing the kingdom, then why does he die? It's because through his death, he brings the kingdom. Okay. And here's the best part. Through his death, 
he brings us into the kingdom. Okay. Take that idea of the veil being rent. Here, heaven is rent and God comes down to earth. But if you read the Old Testament, you know last time God came down to earth, it was pretty difficult. Right? As God's presence is dwelling in the tabernacle, there's all of these laws and rituals to keep people safe because sinners and a holy God is a, uh, is a cocktail for death. And by the time Jesus dies on the cross, this great seven-inch thick curtain keeping people away from the presence of God is ripped from top to bottom. The way is open back into a relationship with God. Everybody who meets Jesus is going to go, is this guy the Messiah? And when they finally come to that conclusion, he's going to say, yes, but you think that means I'm going to come in and conquer the Romans. You think that means that I'm headed towards victory, but I'll tell you the truth. I'm headed towards death. I'm going to be turned over to the Romans. They're going to put me to death. And three days later, I will raise again. Okay. Even here, we need to understand that until we can connect Jesus with the crucifixion, we don't understand Jesus. Yes, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, and he came preaching the kingdom. He came to proclaim the kingdom. He came, as we saw in Isaiah, to bring about justice. But what that means is he came to die. Okay. The gospel is effectively this, that God found a way to end evil without ending us. Because the problem is not just out there. It's right here. It runs right through our hearts. And the profound reality is the way that he did that was by taking our evil upon himself and the full consequences that come with it. That's why when we baptize Christians today, it's not preparatory. Romans 6 says, don't you know that as many as are being baptized are baptized into Christ? We identify not just with Jesus, we identify with his death. And we say, in Jesus, I died and my sins were paid for. In Jesus' resurrection, I now live and I'm living and will be made living a life of righteousness. Okay. This is the good news and the gospel of Mark is its beginning. Let's pray. Father, you promise in the book of Hosea that even though your people have been adulterous and have worshipped other gods, and have broken the covenant, that you will draw them out into the wilderness and woo them into love again. And here we find, in the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the wilderness. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would open our eyes to see who you really are, that we would feel the demonstration, not just of Jesus' profound character and power, but the depths of his love. This is love, the New Testament says. 
that while we were still the enemies of God, Christ died for us. I pray, Lord, that we would know truly and more deeply who Jesus is. We ask this in your name. Amen.